0: Ezekiel was given a vision of the Lord's wrath falling on the city of Jerusalem, and it was terrible. That's what's gone on in the book so far. This morning, we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11. These chapters are the second half, then, of the vision that began in chapters 8 and 9, and you'll find chapter 10 on page 836 in the church Bible. And what we find in chapter 10 is that the Lord abandons his temple. If you have your Bible open, look at chapter 10, verse 1. I looked, and I saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim, Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple And the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court. Like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it. And put it into the hands of the man in linen, who took it and went out. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like the hands of a man. Then look down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kebar River and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings and under their wings was what looked like the hands of a man. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kebar River. Each one went straight ahead. What Ezekiel sees here is the same chariot throne he saw in chapter 1. We skipped over some verses. Those verses give us the detailed description that we find in chapter 1. So it's the same chariot throne. The difference is in the vision of chapter 1, the chariot throne had arrived in Babylon and the Lord himself was seated on the throne. But here, The beginning of chapter 10, the chariot throne is parked outside the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's empty. It's parked here like a very grand taxi, it's waiting for a passenger. You may remember when we looked at chapter 1, we had some volunteers stand down here to help us picture the base of the throne. It was made up of four living creatures. Here, Ezekiel calls those living creatures cherubim. We'll think in a moment why that is. But first, you might remember that the four volunteers acted as the four living creatures. They stood in a square, each one of them facing outwards. So we had one facing this wall, one facing this wall, one facing the platform, and one facing the back in a square. And each one had their wings stretched out. Their wings were touching at the corners of the square. Underneath their wings, they had arms. And in each corner of the square, there was a wheel within a wheel. Something like this. The point of the wheels is that there can be sideways movement in any direction. The point of the wings is that there can be upwards movement too. This chariot throne can go anywhere. We saw when we looked at chapter 1 that the creatures and the wheels made up the base of the throne. And supported on a platform above the base was the throne itself. So the four living creatures are throne bearers. Their job is to transport the throne that's sitting over their heads. Now we've said that here the throne is waiting for its passenger. But before we get to that, we're introduced again to the man clothed in linen. We saw him in chapter 9. He was sent out in chapter 9 with a pen. His job was to go through Jerusalem and put a mark on those who were faithful to God, those who grieved and lamented over sin. Those men and women with the mark on their foreheads were saved from the slaughter that took place in the city. But here, the man clothed in linen is given another job. Verse 2 tells us, the Lord said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. So now we learn that in the middle of the base of the throne, there's a fire. Think of the four living creatures round a brazier that's full of burning, flaming coals. The man clothed in linen is to go close and take some coals and then scatter them over Jerusalem. So the point is that, yes, some in the city have been saved, but there is no hope for the city itself the city is going to burn. The people who would actually carry this out in history were the Babylonians. Around six years after Ezekiel saw this vision, the army of Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. But here in the vision, the point is clear. The Babylonians will carry out the destruction, but the one behind it is the Lord. The coals of fire come from his throne. It's his wrath that's being poured out in the city. The Babylonians are just the Lord's instruments. And to understand what happens next, we need to have a picture in our minds of the inside of the temple. You may remember that the innermost room of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And in that room stood the Ark of the Covenant. And overlooking the ark were two huge statues. Statues that looked something like this. You can see the ark looking quite small in the middle at the bottom. These huge statues represent heavenly creatures called cherubim. They're not actual heavenly creatures. They're representations, replicas. They're not idols unlike the things that we saw in chapter 8. These statues are meant to be here in the temple. They're here to show that the Lord himself is truly present above that little ark. These huge representations of heavenly creatures are here to show that this is the place where heaven touches earth. And so, over and over, the Old Testament talks about the Lord being enthroned between the cherubim. Now, it was very clear that the Lord wasn't confined in this room. That wasn't the point. Everyone knew that. The point was this room was the place where heaven touched earth. The Lord wasn't confined there, but He was truly present there. He lived among His people in all of His holiness. But now he's going to leave. He will not stay any longer among the sinful and rebellious people. His real chariot throne is parked outside the temple waiting for him. The base of that throne is made up of actual living cherubim, possibly as big, if not much bigger, than those statues. And now that he's seeing God's throne for the second time, Ezekiel recognizes that's what the four living creatures are. They're cherubim. The first vision was a bit of a blur to him in chapter 1. But now he's seeing it again. He's getting his bearings a little more. And in verses 3 to 4, we're told that the Lord's presence moves from above the statues of the cherubim in the temple And it moves out into the courtyard of the temple. And verse 18 describes the Lord taking his seat on the chariot throne. Look again at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped over the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. At the end of chapter 11, we're going to see the Lord finally leave the city on his throne. But here he's seated on his throne and ready to leave. Back in chapter 8, God showed Ezekiel the false worship that was going on in Jerusalem. Even in the temple itself, Idols were being worshipped. And here, God is saying very clearly, You have chosen your idols instead of me, and you will be left with your idols instead of me. I'm going. For hundreds of years, the Lord has been present among the Israelites. And now, as someone has put it, the divine king has abandoned his residence. This is disastrous. There could be nothing worse than this. God is going. He will soon be gone. Over the hills and far away, literally. And yet, many in Jerusalem are oblivious to this disastrous situation. They have a false sense of security. We're going to see that it's possible to be without God yet feel perfectly secure. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance to the gate were 25 men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah son of Azur and Pelatiah son of Benaiah, leaders of the people, The Lord said to me, son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. They say, will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and he told me to say, this is what the Lord says. That is what you are saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord." For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? False security. The cauldron and the meat. While the Lord is leaving Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem are oblivious to what's going on. They believe they're secure in the city. In verse 1, Ezekiel is shown 25 men, leaders of Israel, and he even recognizes some of them. He mentions Jaazaniah son of Azur, and Pelatiah son of Beniah. Now clearly here, Ezekiel is being shown these men before destruction came on the city. So the slaughter of chapter 9 and the fire of chapter 10 have not yet arrived in Jerusalem. That's perfectly within the rules for a vision. It doesn't have to follow a straight line in time. But here, right after Ezekiel has been shown the reality that God is leaving, he's shown these leaders of the people full of confidence. Verse 2 says they're plotting evil and doing evil. Yet in verse 3 they say, Will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot, and we are the meat. What on earth do they mean? Well, these leaders believe that they have everything under control. They're very aware of the threat of Babylon, but they're planning for future building programs. Will it not soon be time to build houses? Yes, it might not be the time to build right now. We understand that, but it soon will be. This storm will pass. It'll blow over. Things will get back to normal. Life will go on as before. There's really nothing to worry about. Why are these men so confident? They're confident because they believe the city is secure. Jerusalem's never going to fall. This is God's holy city, for goodness sake. The future might look bleak, but really there's nothing to worry about. That's the point of this saying about the pot and the meat. We're not to think here of a little pot that we put on our stovetop at home. Think instead of a big cauldron, big enough to climb into. The kind of cauldron that they use in cartoons about witches and cannibals, one of those. When the lid is on one of those things, there's no way to get in. And when a big cauldron like that is full, there's no way you're going to tip it over. It's a safe place to be. These leaders in Jerusalem believe that the city is just as safe as that. And they're saying, we are the choice pieces of meat in the cauldron. So their point is, all the goodness is in the pot. That's us. All the rubbish, the refuse, is outside the pot. So think for a moment of an animal carcass that's been skinned, all the intestines have been removed. All those bits are the waste. They don't go in the pot. They get thrown to the side. And then remember that Ezekiel and thousands of other Israelites have been taken away into exile. The leaders in Jerusalem are looking at those in exile and they're thinking, those people are the waste. God has thrown them to the side. But here we are. We're still in Jerusalem. We're the people. Where the choice meat. we're safe here. This is an impregnable, untippable pot. But we're about to see that God's perspective is exactly the opposite. Their sense of security is a false security. God points out the evil these people are engaged in. Look again at verse six. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. God says to these leaders You are not the choice meat, you're not the goodness. The people you killed were the good ones. You're the refuse. And I will drive you out of this city you think is so secure. I will smash a hole in your pot. I'll tip it over. And I'll do it through the Babylonian army. Verse 11. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. The people of Jerusalem are going to learn that security does not come from where they live. It doesn't come from their nationality. It doesn't even come from having a temple of the Lord in their midst. Those are all false sources of security. Security comes from letting God be God in our lives. Worshipping him with our lives. Turning away from false worship. Rejecting the idols that we worship instead of God. Grieving and lamenting over our sin. Instead of excusing it or glorying in it. Sure, the people in Jerusalem had the Lord's temple in their midst. But they were no different from the nations around them that didn't have the Lord's temple. And they were no more safe from God's wrath than the nations around them. And as a token of that, verse 13 says that in the middle of this vision, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, drops dead. He was one of the ones who thought he was secure in the pot. His death and the vision is a foretaste of what's coming on all of those who are falsely secure. I heard last week that 2.9% of people in England are what we might call committed practicing Christians. Men and women who are serious about loving and obeying God. 2.9%, a lot less than in Cuba. Yet it's quite amazing how many people in England believe they're going to heaven when they die. A lot more than 2.9%. It's amazing, too, how many people ignore God completely, but they still expect him to bail them out when they face a crisis. Maybe those people still think of England as a Christian country. As far as they see it, England is a safe and secure place. Maybe they think of England like the people in Jerusalem thought of their city it's a big safe pot. If you're born here, then God is on your side, God has got your back. That is false security. Then we can narrow our focus a little bit and ask, how many churches have turned away from God and his word, yet they still believe he's on their side? Maybe they believe that because they have a long history. They have an impressive tradition. Maybe they believe it because they have lots of people showing up on a Sunday. But a long history and big attendance are no guarantees that God is present and pleased. History and numbers are false reasons to feel secure. We could make our focus even narrower and ask how many individuals in churches have a false sense of security. They treat God as irrelevant Monday through to Saturday But they're quite proud to think of themselves as religious people. Maybe they even prayed a prayer for salvation 20, 30 years ago. Maybe they were baptized. They're confident that they are the choice meat. They're safe and secure. Maybe some of us are even in that category. Let's be very careful that our sense of security is not a false sense of security. God's perspective on us may be very different. In his eyes, we may be no different from those who never darken the door of a church. It is possible to sincerely believe God is with us and yet be sincerely wrong. That was the terrible mistake of these leaders in Jerusalem. It's a mistake people are still making today. Well then, where does this leave us? Where did it leave the people of Ezekiel's day? That's the question Ezekiel is asking at the end of verse 13. Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel has asked this question before, back in chapter 9. If those in Jerusalem don't have God with them, then who does? When God leaves the temple, is that it? When the pot that's Jerusalem gets smashed and tipped over by the Babylonians, is there no hope for anyone then? Is God just ticking off back to heaven? Is he washing his hands of the whole mess down here on earth? Well, thankfully, the answer is no. In verses 14 to 25, the Lord provides hope for those who are far away. This passage has been called the Gospel according to Ezekiel. And actually, these are God's words. This is good news from the very same God who's just about to leave the temple. Look with me at verse 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives, and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people in Jerusalem have said, They are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession." Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people. And I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. In verse 15, God reminds Ezekiel that according to those in Jerusalem, Ezekiel and the other exiles are the waste outside the pot. The fact that they're in exile is proof that God has abandoned them. Those in Jerusalem say of the exiles, they are far away from the Lord. But God says, actually, the exact opposite is true. Yes, God says the exiles are sinners too. I did scatter them far and wide for their sin. But... They are not necessarily lost. Look again at verse 16. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Sanctuary is another word for temple. And God's words here are very significant. He doesn't refer to the temple as a building. He says the temple is himself. The Lord himself is the place where we find sanctuary. We find safety and security when we come to him. When we turn away from our false sources of security. To love and trust the Lord instead. Ezekiel and the other exiles are hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, but they're not far from God. He is the sanctuary available to them wherever they are. In fact, when the end of our passage describes God leaving Jerusalem on his throne, we're told the throne heads east. That's towards Babylon. God is going in search of the exiles. Now, this would probably have been very shocking to the exiles themselves. They probably had the same idea as those in Jerusalem. We're in exile. So what hope do we have of finding refuge in God? God's not here. But as God speaks to the exiles, he's not only speaking to them. He's preparing the way for the New Testament. Verse 17 describes how the exiles would eventually return to Israel. And yes, eventually some of them did return and they did rebuild the temple. But things were never the same. The glory of God's presence is never recorded as returning to the rebuilt temple. Here, God has made it clear that the true temple is a person. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1, John says this about Jesus Christ The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's literally, he tabernacled or templed among us. Jesus Christ came to earth as our true sanctuary. In John chapter 2, he stood outside the temple building in Jerusalem and he made it clear that he was the true temple. You may remember when Jesus died, the heavy curtain at the door of the temple was torn in two. That not only meant that we can now approach God, it also meant that God wasn't in that building anymore. That curtain was flapping in the wind. The torn curtain said, you can go in and have a look. You won't find God in there. You'll find him by coming to the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only safe and secure place of refuge. Not Jerusalem, not England, not even this church building. For some of us, this truth comes as a challenge. Are you looking to the wrong thing for your security? Are you wrongly imagining that you are safe and secure? What's God's perspective? Because his perspective is the one that matters. For others of us, this passage has wonderfully good news. You might think of yourself as far away from God, you might think of yourself as some of the rubbish that's outside the pot. The useless stuff that God wouldn't be interested in. Maybe other people look at you that way. but The truth is, God has come in search of those who are far away from him. Just as he went in search of these exiles, he comes to us in the person of Jesus and he says, Come to me. I will be your sanctuary. If you'll only turn from the other things that you trust in and trust in me instead. Remember our reading earlier from Ephesians. God spoke to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. He said, Once you were far away, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. When we come to Jesus, he becomes our sanctuary. We can have genuine, true security. Because Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be welcomed and accepted by God. Maybe you're this this morning a Christian who's filled with doubt. You know the gospel, but you still wonder if God would really accept someone who is as weak and stumbling as you are. Remember what we sang earlier. What reason have I to doubt? Why should I dwell in fear? When all I have known is grace, my future in Christ is clear. My sins have been paid in full. There's no condemnation here. I live in the good of this. My Father has brought me near. Your security does not depend on your performance. It depends on what Christ has done on your behalf. The Bible has genuinely good news for those who recognize themselves as far away from God. He has come to us. He himself is our place of refuge and security. When we turn to him, our past is forgotten. We're back home again. God has given these Israelite exiles a new understanding of what it means to be near to God. And now he gives them the promise of new life. Look again at verse 19. I will give them an undivided heart. And put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. God promises here to recreate his people from the inside out. He promises that when men and women come to him for refuge, He will work to change them. Back in chapter 8, Ezekiel saw a temple that was full of idols. When we looked at that, we thought that, or we saw in fact, that idol worship is about so much more than bowing down to little statues. Idol worship is about the things that we cherish and depend on, really deep down. But here, God says, when you come to me, I will give you an undivided heart. A heart that looks to me alone for fulfillment and peace and security. God promises to put a new spirit in those who come to to him. Back in verse 5, he spoke about the spirit of those who do not belong to him. In verse 5, the word was translated mind. But it's the same word that's translated as spirit here in verse nineteen. The spirit of those who don't belong to God is a spirit of selfishness. It's out to get what it wants, whatever the consequences might be. But God describes the ultimate consequences of that as death. But here, God gives the promise of a new spirit. He will live in his people by his Holy Spirit. His people will receive new desires, new priorities, new loves. As God's Spirit works in them, they will increasingly love what he loves. God says, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, they were spiritually dead, but I will make them truly, fully alive. Essentially, in verse 19, God is saying the same thing in three different ways. When we come to God for refuge, he doesn't leave us as we are. He works in us to change us, to make us more like him. It makes sense that when God begins to live in us, he's going to go to work making us a fit place for him to live in. God accepts us as we are. But he never ever leaves us as we are. None of us are a fit home for him when he first moves in. But he goes to work. Renovating the broken down house that he's just moved into. Now that's a process that won't be completed until the new heaven and earth. But God starts work on it right away. It's important to notice what God is saying here. He's saying that when we come to him as our sanctuary, then he takes up residence in us. It's very clear in the New Testament too. We've seen how the beginning of the New Testament refers to Jesus as the temple. Then as the New Testament goes on, after Jesus has returned to heaven, we discover that when we come to Jesus... He comes and makes his temple in us. By his spirit, he lives in us. That's true of us as individuals and as a church body. It's true of the church spread across the world. Today, the temple of God is the people of God. All those united by faith in Jesus. Again, think back to our reading in Ephesians Paul tells the believers there that they are members of God's household. Jesus is the cornerstone, and they are being built together to become a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And look at the consequence of all this. Look what happens when God moves in and goes to work in our lives. In verse 20, God says, Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The leaders in Jerusalem thought they were safe, and yet their lives were given over to sin and disobedience. The situation of the exiles is exactly the opposite. They have no illusions about their desperate situation, they are in exile because of their sin. God is not pleased with them. But if they'll come to him in repentance, they will be saved. And their lives will begin to reflect his holiness. They'll begin to obey him and follow him. The exiles would be saved and those in Jerusalem would be lost. In verse 21, God is describing those in Jerusalem. Those people who think they're safe when actually they're lost. As for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. If we cling to our false worship, there is no sanctuary for us. In the final verses of our passage, Ezekiel watches the chariot throne finally leaving the walls of Jerusalem. And he's taken back to the room that he's been sitting in all along, his living room back in Babylon. When the vision began, the leaders of the exiles were sitting in front of him in his living room. And when the vision ends, Ezekiel tells them everything the Lord has just shown him. This is both a challenge and an opportunity for these leaders. They need to turn to God, all of the exiles do. And if they do, they'll find new life. This passage has a challenge and an opportunity for us too. Its challenge is very solemn. We are not to take God's presence lightly. We're not to be comfortable with our sin, our false idols. As a church, we mustn't look to our tradition or our numbers as proof that God is with us. The temple in Jerusalem had the tradition and the numbers, but it was just a hollow shell. God had left the building. That can happen to church fellowships too. And as individuals, we mustn't rely on some past commitment that we made. That can be a false sense of security. Every day we need to come to Jesus as our one and only refuge. I'm not saying we have to pray for salvation every day, I mean we have to come back to Him as our only true source of security. We need to look to the Holy Spirit every day to keep our heart undivided, to soften our hearts all over again. They so easily get hard and stony and cold. We have to be serious about obeying God. Obedience doesn't save us, but if we are saved, we will live to obey him even when we stumble and fall, we'll turn away from our sin because we hate our sin. We have a new spirit in us. Before we move into the next part of our service, we're going to sing a prayer for God to continue working in us by his spirit. And as we sing this, we're asking God to continue making us more like him. The the hymn is Breathe On Me Breath of God. Stand as we sing this.